The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome. Welcome to you all, uh, members and visitors and uh, online. I want to welcome you if you're tuning in uh, to our live stream this morning. Um, actually, we have a great, great bit of news this morning that uh, Tara Moore was baptized yesterday. Um, here, so. We're, we're really excited for you and grateful for this step that you've taken. It's, it's awesome. So we're so pumped for that. And uh, I also, I hear tell that Carol Brazel might be in the room. Would you stand, Carol? We want to welcome Carol. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, if you don't know, Paul and Carol, there are missionaries to Belgium. They've been there for about 30 years now, I think. And uh, we're, we're really proud of the work you guys are doing and the way that you're witnessing to God's reconciliation in Belgium. And I know our youth are excited to get out there this summer, so that's going to be great. Uh, but we've been, we've been talking a lot about reconciliation, actually, as we've uh, gone through Ephesians, this, this sermon series, which, by the way, uh, there, as of this Sunday, um, after this sermon, there will be just three sermons left in the Ephesians series. So uh, I want to encourage you to stick around. Um, next couple weeks, we really want you here, um, and I hope you'll, you'll be here to finish out this, this great letter um, with us. Because I, th- I think we're going to see over the next few weeks, that, that the ending of Ephesians, the last few parts of it, are really kind of a commentary on Ephesians 4 verse 1. So if you remember 4 verse 1 from a few weeks ago, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And from chapters 1 through 3, we know what we're called to. We know what God is doing, this this huge cityscape, cosmic view of salvation. We know that's what we're called to. But how does that play out in our lives? You know, how do we take these, these big heavenly indicatives and bring them down to earthly imperatives? You know, how do we, how do we actually apply this uh, to boots on the ground, daily life as the church, as God's people? A faithful association of reconciled people. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning in our text. Uh, And we're going to do that by asking three questions. We're going to ask three questions this morning. And that's, what does the text do? What do Americans do? And what do we do? So we're going to ask, what does the text do? What do Americans do? And what do we do? Uh, So we, we begin with, what does the text do in Ephesians verse 17. Stick with me. This is kind of a long passage. Here we go. Paul says, now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They've lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And to clothe yourselves with 
the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, Let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children. And live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's a lot of text. That is a lot to tackle in one go. But believe it or not, I've got to tag on just a little bit more to this this whole big thing. I want to back up just a few verses into the the tail end of Ben's text from last week. So so let me start in Ephesians 4, just, just three more verses, 15 through 18. Paul says, But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. Now, this I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. So Paul is using body language, not the kind that I use in my sermons a lot with big hand gesture waving. Paul, Paul's using body language like body as a metaphor. Paul's been talking about, hey, you're one body, and Christ is the head, and, and all of you are the ligaments and the parts joined together in Christ, and you've got to promote a healthy body. And so in this vein of body language, how does Paul diagnose the Gentiles? Paul says the Gentiles, they live in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. So so what's the problem? The problem is their minds. The problem is their minds. It's it's the mind and the heart, which, by the way, in Scripture, are are very closely related ideas. Um, so, So the mind and the heart... Uh, basically kind of represent this zone of, of emotion-fused thought. Um, so, so the mind and the heart, uh, they describe the intellect, the, the personality, the judgment, the affections. And so, so Paul says the Gentiles haven't got this figured out. You know, the Gentiles have this futility of their minds, and, and so if you guys want to be one body, if you want to be healthy and promoting growth and building one another up in love, it's going to start here. 
It's going to start in the renewing of your minds. And so Paul goes on to say just that. He says, these Gentiles, they've lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you've heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former way of life. Your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to clothe yourselves with the new self created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We took my in-laws to Top Golf a few weeks ago. if you've been there, if you haven't been there, uh, it's, Top Golf is it's basically a driving range where you can kind of hang out and, and lounge around and order food. It's, it's kind of like the bowling of golf, really. Uh, it, it's just right off of Western. You know, there's, there's only so many sports where you can eat chips and queso between the shots. And so, so, like, that's what Top Golf is. And, and I enjoy it despite the fact that I'm a pretty poor golfer. Um, because golfing is complicated, right? It's, it's like the most frustrating sport around. Because if you watch a pro golfer, especially if you watch them in slow motion, you'll see that you know, their whole body is moving in one perfect, fluid, synchronous move. Just one body all together. All these parts coming together. And so there are a lot of reasons I'm bad at golf. You could ask Tim Giddens about that. But the main one, it really boils down to one thing. It's my mind. I am not a good golfer because my mind has not trained all of these other parts of my body to work together in one fluid motion. You know, I'll, I'll master my stance and then, and then my grip will go wrong, you know, or my, my hips will rebel against my shoulders, my eyes get off the ball, something gets out of whack. I'm not a good golfer because I can't keep it all together up here. You know, I haven't trained myself to get rid of those old habits from when I was a kid playing baseball, and and now I I can't bring it together in my mind. And I know golf is probably kind of a well-worn sermon metaphor by now, but but that's really kind of what Paul is saying here. You know, he's saying, church, you're one body uh, with all these ligaments coming together, you know, under the head of Christ. And if you're going to be one healthy body built up together, it's going to start here. It's going to start in the renewing of your minds, the renewing of your, your intellect, your judgment, your personality, your affections. And so Paul says in, in verse 25, he says something very central for us this morning. He goes on to say, So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors for... We are members of one another. What a striking statement that is. Members of one another. I, I've been mulling over that statement as I've been looking at this text over the last couple of weeks. That, that's continued to jump out at me because of how beautifully it sums up this body language. How beautifully Paul says, you know, you're not just yourself. I'm not just myself but we're members of each other. I'm a part of you, and you're a part of me. And you know what that means for us, church? That means the loss of freedom. That means the loss of one of our most precious American commodities, and that's individual freedom. 
right? Because our, our second question this morning is, is what do Americans do? And, and what Americans do is we champion freedom. You know, it's in, it's in our national anthem. We belt it out. We argue it out in courts. We, we, we love our individual freedom, which is a good thing. Uh, but actually, we love our individual freedom so much um, that we trumpet even a certain type of freedom. Um, it's a certain type of freedom that some people refer to as absolute negative freedom. So as opposed to positive freedom, uh, which would be the freedom for something good, to pursue some good aim, um, absolute negative freedom w- would be the freedom to do whatever without any restrictions or limitations or any kind of societal responsibility. You know, and so this is actually kind of a core principle uh, for us as Americans. This is kind of a harm principle um, in that, you know, we can kind of do whatever we want as long as we're not harming someone else. You know, as long as we don't curtail someone else's freedom, then we're cool to, you know, continue in in whatever freedoms that we've decided on. Um, And so so this is actually such a pervasive idea um, that it's invisible, you know, it's kind of one of those invisible narratives, we might even call it an unthought, you know, that it's something that we just accept without questioning, it's kind of in the air that we breathe, it's in the water that we drink. And so much to that, even some of you right now might even be thinking, well, Brett, how can you, how could that be a bad thing? Like, how could you, why would you want to argue against that absolute negative freedom? But here's where the problem arises. The problem arises when Americans try to define what harm is. The problem arises if, if our overriding good, our overriding moral good is absolute negative freedom, that I can do what I want as long as I'm not harming someone else. Well, where do Americans define harm? You know, for instance, some Americans might say that, that it's okay for, for a man in the privacy of his own home to, to watch pornography. You know, some people might say that's fine, he, he's in the privacy of his own home, that's his freedom, he's not harming anyone else. But other Americans would argue and say, well, actually, by consuming pornography, he's actually going to be negatively misshaping himself. And he's going to be negatively affecting his relationship with society, his relationship with women in particular. And so by doing that, there's going to be an actual overall negative effect of male-female relationships in society. So these are the kind of arguments that, that Americans can have with one another about what exactly is harm or what exactly is freedom. I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, from the realm of politics, you know, we might say that on one end of the spectrum, someone would say, well, true economic freedom is the freedom of the markets. You know, it's the, it's the freedom of, of the markets, somebody to get up and start their business and do their thing and, and no one else to interfere. But somebody on the other end of the spectrum might say that true economic freedom is the freedom from want or, or the freedom from poverty, from need. And so on one side, we've got saying, hey, it's harmful to to interfere. It's harmful to interfere with the free market. And on the other side, no, it's it's harmful to to reach in, to not reach in and help someone. And so these are the kind of conundrums that, that Americans get themselves into when we have absolute negative freedom as an overriding good, 
as our overriding principle because we have trouble defining what harm and freedom are. So how does this relate to us? This is where we come back to Ephesians. Because what what does Paul say this morning? As we ask our third question, what do we do? Paul, remember he starts off Ephesians 4 with, hey, Gentiles. Remember, he's actually, he's writing to Gentiles in Ephesians. He says, hey, Gentiles, don't think like Gentiles. Don't act like Gentiles. You're one new humanity now, you know? You're a third race, so you've got to think like Christ, So I have a feeling Paul might say something similar to us. I have a feeling Paul might look at us and he might say, hey, Americans, don't think like Americans. Hey, Americans, don't act like Americans. Don't don't live, you, you can't act out of this absolute negative freedom because you don't belong to yourself. You belong to each other, church. Paul might say, you belong to one another. All these disparate body parts and ligaments and sinew and and bones all come together under the head of Christ. And so he continues in Ephesians 4. He says, so then putting away all falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing, rather let them labor and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. You know, our, our concept of absolute negative freedom wouldn't make sense to Paul. It wouldn't make sense to the ethic that Paul is trying to lay out for Christians because we're members of one another, he says. And so, so what does this mean for us? This means that as a church, sometimes a yes to we is a no to me. Sometimes as the church, a yes to we is a no to me. So if we're members of one another... We're not allowed to just say whatever we want to say. Paul says we're we're to say what builds up the body, what gives grace to one another. You know, if if we're members of one another, then we're, we're allowed to be angry, but we're not allowed to let that anger turn into sin. And we're not allowed to, to let the sun go down on that anger. And if we're members of one another, then then we can't steal. You know, if we're members of one another, not only can we not steal, but some of that money that we earn honestly belongs to one another. You know, Paul says, these labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. It's, it's kind of like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. If you've got two coats, give one of them away. If you've got two coats, 
One of them belongs to the poor, is kind of what he's saying. And likewise, if we're members of one another, that means we can't cheat on our spouses. You know, if we're members of one another, we can't lust after one another because that hurts the whole body, right? You know, if we're members of one another, we can't look at pornography because not only is that a sin against ourselves, not only is that a sin against God, that's a sin against all of us together. One body under the head of Christ. A yes to we is a no to me, church. If, if we want to say yes to what God is doing in the world, if we want to say yes to this breaking down the dividing wall and reconciling all things and gathering them up in Christ, then that means a no to ourselves and a no to our deceitful desires. That's what it means to be members of one another. That, that's what it means to renew our minds, to think like one body, to have the mind of Christ. But guess what? There's even better news this morning. There's better news because if we're members of one another and we're struggling, you never struggle alone. If we're members of one another, you are never alone in your struggles. Listen to how Paul finishes this section again. He says, put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So if we're one body, if all of our ligaments and parts are joined together in the head of Christ, then forgiveness isn't optional. Kindness isn't optional. Love tenderheartedness, all these things are not optional under the head of Christ as one body. God has designed it in just this way so that we would have to rely on each other. So that our words would give grace to one another. I'm, I'm paraphrasing Dietrich Bonhoeffer when I say that, that Christ is always stronger in our brother's heart. You know, that the Christ in my heart is weaker than the Christ that I receive in the word from my brother or sister. Christ is always stronger in my sister and brother's heart. Because we're saved together. And we're saved as one body under the head of Christ. There, there's an American band I enjoy uh, named Fleet Foxes. And uh, they have a song called Helplessness Blues. Um, and, and the opening lines to this song this, by this American band are quite un-American to me. They, they espouse an ethic that I think is, is a little bit countercultural. So the first verse goes like this. It's saying, I was raised up believing I was somehow unique. Like a snowflake, distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now, after some thinking... I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. 
Church, I don't know what America is going to do. You know, I, I don't know what's going to happen there, but I know that we're not taught to think or act or do and walk and talk like Americans. We're taught to think and act and do and walk and talk like the one body of Christ together in Jesus. We're taught to love one another. To, to really live into this idea of a, a faith-reconciled people who forgive each other, who show kindness, who speak a word of love and truth to one another. That's the calling to which we've been called. You know, if, if unity is not secondary, it's primary. If, if we've been called to this calling of unity, that's how this operates. And guess where all of it begins? It begins in baptism. That's the first step. It starts in baptism because, you know, Ephesians 2 tells us that, that we were dead in our transgressions, but that God made us alive together with Christ. You know, that, that every part of our bodies, every person in the body and every part of our bodies is resurrected and made alive with Christ. As, as one commentator says, that in the name of the Lord, your dirty tongue, your crafty hands, your hard and violent heart can and shall do what befits a member of one body. That's the beautiful thing about baptism. Baptism is joining the Messiah team. You know, it's, put, it's putting on the Jesus jersey. It's wearing the Christ clothes. That's baptism. And God calls us to act like we're on one team. As one writer puts it, become in reality what in your baptism you professed to be. Become in reality what in your baptism you profess to be. And what we profess to be is members of one another in Christ Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unity in God's Trinity. That's the mystery. That's the calling. And if you want to join that call, answer that call, join the Messiah team, we'd love to talk to you more about baptism, about joining into that head of Christ. And if you've already joined, then let's live like it. Let's live into it as members of one another church. Would you stand as one body and praise God, our Father and Savior?